in order to properly address human longevity, you have to properly address nearly every human biological system. Like why not marry modern science to ancestral wisdom? I think amongst you know entrepreneurs and executives and people who do travel a lot, biohacking does seem to have caught on because we have to figure out a way if we can't do it from an ancestral standpoint to do it from a yeah. technology standpoint. The rise in diabetes and obesity and some other chronic diseases that are metabolically related, it's not linked to a rise in carbohydrate consumption or more lentils or more, more naan or anything like that. It's linked to the replacement of many of those traditional oils with vegetable oil. You hit 60 and our retirement age is 60 here, not 65 like US and you mentally start acting like an old person and the rate of aging just accelerates and by the time you are 70, you actually act, behave, look like an old person. Ben, welcome. Really looking forward to this conversation. I think uh, I read your book Boundless way back in 2019 or I guess I didn't fully read it. It's a 2000 page book. I remember being like really inspired because I had, you know, tracked this field of longevity biohacking till that time. But you have, you know, bits of information here and there, different people talking about different things. But here's this book, which basically literally is a Bible of everything which was relevant in the biohacking longevity space back then. Mm. Just want to understand you know, your journey leading up to this book, because, you know, as an author myself, just writing a 100,000 word uh, book takes a couple of years and I'm not doing original work, also just doing mostly translation. But how did you end up writing this book and that too, choosing to write it you know, so comprehensively? First of all, the book was not supposed to be that big. Mm. And it actually became very hard to find a publisher who would publish a book like that and convince them that anybody would even want it. It began with me wanting to write a book about anti-aging and longevity, mm -hmm. how to live a long time. As I saw people becoming interested in stem cells and peptides and exosomes, you know, all these little yeah. hacks to live longer, mm -hmm. you know, longer than the arguable 115 years old, which is the current approximate limit of human lifespan. Mm -hmm. And frankly, uh, I, I think still is and will be for some time, the, the, the approximate human lifespan. But as you delve into all of the different physiological systems that mm. degrade with age, and you look at the mitochondria and the musculoskeletal system and the brain, and not just the brain, but the blood-brain barrier mm -hmm. and the neurotransmitters and the cardiovascular yeah. system and the gut, you realize that in order to properly address human longevity, you have to properly address mm -hmm. nearly every human biological system. Yeah which frankly, for the first 14 or 15 years of my life, I cared nothing about at all. You know, I was homeschooled K through 12 and grew up in the hills in Idaho and I played the violin and read and wrote fantasy fiction. And I was president of the chess club and was not interested in muscles or performance or nutrition or supplementation or anything of the like until I discovered the sport of tennis. Mm. My, uh, Tennis instructor uh, was was an attractive young woman who I young you know testosterone infused fourteen right. to fifteen year old boy I had a little bit of a crush on so best I wanted way to, to find inspiration. I wanted to be yeah. a best student and right. so I began to run up the hills you know behind my house and I convinced my dad to take me to the sporting goods store and buy me a set of ten pound dumbbells I didn't know even what to do with them you know I'd lay on the edge of my bed and just kind of do 
curls and little moves. And I remember I also bought an as seen on TV exercise device for strengthening the abdominals. It was like, it was like a rocket ship and you kind of hold it against your stomach and pull in while you did like a isometric contraction of the stomach. But you know, through mentors, my uh, younger brother's uh, best friend's father was a bodybuilder in the community, and he began to teach me about nutrition and supplementation. Uh, another friend of my father's was the Washington State powerlifting champ, so he got me uh, into strength and lifting, and I really started to get very interested in the human body. And I wound up actually, uh, I think originally to the disappointment of my parents, deciding not to go off and do an internship with a Microsoft computer programmer that they'd lined me up for because my my strongest interest at the time was video game design. And I had, you know was taking apart computers and putting them back together and I'd already taken coding classes and I was the guy who fixed the computers at home when they were broken. And I instead uh, walked onto the tennis team at a college uh, in Idaho, in Lewiston, Idaho, I declared a major in exercise science and eventually just got a master's degree in physiology and biomechanics. I studied for the, uh, for the MCAT and went pre-med and mm-hmm. got accepted to a host of different medical schools, uh, passed on all of them because I really wanted to get into the MD PhD program at UPenn or Duke. And so I thought, well, I'll make myself a more palatable student. So then I, uh, I, I got a job in hip and knee surgical sales, thinking that if I worked for a little while in medicine, I'd maybe be able to get into a better school. And that entire experience just disillusioned me with modern medicine. You know, installing $40,000 overpriced hip and knee implants into people who would have been better served through what I already knew, preventive medicine, health, exercise, nutrition, and the like. So one day I told my employer that this just wasn't for me. A week later, I found myself walking across the street from my little apartment to uh, the Liberty Lake Washington Athletic Club, slapping my resume down on the counter and asking for a job. And at that point, you know, I had a nutrition certification and I'd been personal training people all through college and looked good on paper. So they hired me and I, I never looked back. I've, I've been in human optimization, learning about it, studying it and helping people ever since. And is that the term you like more? Human optimization versus biohacking? Oh. And maybe another part of that very curious, you know, when did biohacking started to become mainstream? Because I've been interested in health and fitness in general for a long period of time. I've also been active all my life, you know, played a lot of sports, bodybuilding phase, long distance running phase, and blah, blah, all of that. But biohacking, I think, at least I'm aware of this in the last five, seven years, but when did you become aware of this? I mean, people call you, uh, you know, one of the foremost biohackers in the world. So it goes, it goes way farther back than that. And then to reply to the, the first part of your question, I wouldn't really even consider myself much of a biohacker compared to what the original definition of biohacking is. And probably a more appropriate definition would be a, you know, human performance enthusiast mm-hmm. or, you know, a human optimization coach. Because if you look all the way back into the mid seventies or mm-hmm. so to the original biohackers, like Kevin Warwick, you know, the mm-hmm. original human cyborg. These were people who called their bodies wetware mm-hmm. and would install hardware like a magnetic compass in mm-hmm. the chest underneath the skin that would vibrate every time someone faced true north or magnetic implants in the fingertips that allowed you to interact with screens very similar to you know, the Tom Cruise and Minority Report or uh, there's a guy you can find on the internet who had chlorophyll injected into his <laughs> eyeballs to be able to uh, install, you know, self-inflicted night vision. And these were the original biohackers. And, and they call themselves biohackers? 
I don't know. Okay. I, I, I would not be surprised. I mean, if you look at the phrase, essentially, you know, a computer hacker is someone who hacks into an OS mm -hmm. or even sometimes the hardware of a computer to enable the computer to work more quickly mm -hmm. or more efficiently or override a, a natural setting of the computer that would allow it to operate better. Mm -hmm. Sometimes to the detriment of the computer, right. you know, sometimes mm -hmm. to the yeah. extent where there's smoke coming out of the hard drive, which also happens to biohackers yeah, it, who take too many nootropics or yeah. smart drugs, for example. Uh, but, you know, when, when you look at that definition of computer hacking, mm -hmm. you could argue that appropriate definition of biohacking would be somehow tweaking the human biology to the extent to where you're allowing it to do something more efficiently or work faster or work better mm -hmm. in a way that it might not otherwise have in right. its natural state. And how is it related to the evolution of science? You know, there was a time where first, you know, if you have health issues, either your grandmother will tell you something or your doctor will tell you something. Mm -hmm. At some point we had this, I don't know, uh, fitness trainers, nutritionists, maybe even lifestyle coaches. And at some point, people saying, I'm going to take control of my own health. I'm going to biohack myself within, you know, what I know and what are the risk appetite I might have. When did science got to that point when a normal person can think about tinkering with their body without killing yeah. themselves in the process? Well, look, that's what got me into biohacking, right? I, I was the guy who was the, the, the fitness guy, mm -hmm. right? The personal trainer. And then I raced Ironman triathlon mm -hmm. for 15 years. And before that I was doing bodybuilding. And after that, I, you know, I, I raced for Reebok as a professional mm -hmm. obstacle course racer in Spartan. And my whole world was fitness. My whole definition was mm -hmm. health of, of health was, you know, how good do you look posing in a speedo on stage covered in you know gold flecked tanning lotion? Are those pictures somewhere with you? They speech? are. If you Google <laughs> bodybuilding Ben Greenfield, you probably find them. Uh, or how quickly can you ride a bicycle down the highway in in the Hawaii World Championships? Or how fast mm -hmm. can you climb a rope in a Spartan race? And it wasn't until I started to experience mm -hmm. health issues that somehow I couldn't override by working out harder at the gym, mm -hmm. that I couldn't override by eating more broccoli and lean chicken mm -hmm. and rice, that I couldn't override by taking a little extra creatine or something mm -hmm. like that, that I realized there must be something deeper to preventive medicine and health and mm -hmm. life optimization than working out and eating healthy, yeah. which is largely still the message of right. whatever. Uh, men's health magazine or women's mm -hmm. health magazine or what have you it's you know you look at the recipes or like how do you suck the most fat out of the food or get the most protein in it and here's the 12th workout of the month that you can do and so early on when i wrote my first book beyond training as the name of that book implies it was all about the things that i had gradually begun to discover that mm -hmm. went beyond just fitness. Mm -hmm. And what got me into that was what you were just asking about this emerging, and this would have been about 12 years ago, world of, uh, of, of self quantification that up until recently mm -hmm. in the past couple of decades would only have been something that someone who would pay like tens of thousands of dollars at the Princeton longevity mm -hmm. Institute or Duke or something like that would have had access to blood tests, you know, um, you know, the saliva test for genetic analysis, urinary tests for hormones, food allergy panels, blood spot tests that tell you a host of things about your body. And I started to test myself mm -hmm. and I realized I'm fit, but I have low thyroid. 
I can lift a lot of weights, but I've got the testosterone levels mm -hmm. of an 80 year old man. Yeah. I can walk into a room and look like I have muscles in my t-shirt, but my inflammatory levels are through the roof mm -hmm. and definitely decreasing my lifespan. And so that was the light bulb moment for me. And that's honestly one of the things that is progressing, if you want to call it the biohacking sector forward to a great extent is now you can test your body mm -hmm. in your own home. Yeah. You can look at your own biochemical individuality and then you can tailor your nutrition, mm -hmm. your supplementation, your exercise program, your choice of what biohacking technologies or lifestyle mm -hmm. adjustments that you want to take to allow yourself to have the power in your own mm -hmm. hands when it comes to actually living longer and feeling good. Mm -hmm. And this whole area of testing yourself, you know, potentially at home. Now, as we all know, the body is very complex. There are hundreds, maybe even thousands of parameters they change, change from day to day, from morning to evening. Someone who is aspiring to be a biohacker, you know, want to, wants to do something about his or her body to optimize performance or health outcomes, where do you even begin? Because you have to understand the, you know, maybe your book is the answer, you know, to understand the terminology, what each thing means, you know, what is HB1AC, why that is important, you know, how does insulin resistance works, what can I measure about that, should I worry about cortisol levels, can it be even retested? To be honest, I don't. Even today, I don't know how often you can actually test cortisol levels. So, but the testing and knowing these parameters is big part of optimizing. Because if you're putting something in your body, whether it's strength protocol or supplements or therapy, but you don't know what is happening, you don't have the feedback loop going. Mm -hmm. So, just you know, I mean, sub, this is an area of interest. I have spent a lot of time learning about it, but it's taken me years, and I still don't think I know anywhere close to what probably you know. So for an aspiring biohacker out there, perhaps in India, where yeah. can they begin to learn about you know right language and right things to test? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So we could just look at this like a, you know, as though we were someone who owned a vehicle and uh, we wanted to fix the vehicle. Well, you could just take your car to a mechanic, right? You could just go, you know, pay a coach or hire a doctor and have them just tell you what to do and you wander off and do it. And that's the expensive but convenient solution. But the fact is that if you look at, let's say, my approach, if I were to, to work with a client who'd hired me to feel better or sleep better, or optimize hormones or whatever, the first thing I'm doing using a very data-driven approach is I am testing them, using a lot of the tests that I just mentioned, like a food allergy, a hormone panel, or a blood test, or, or what have you. Now, what a lot of people don't realize who haven't yet dug into that is that the quality of the apps, the downloadable PDFs, the video libraries, the education has gotten to the extent to where you can know nothing about, let's say, the inflammatory marker HSCRP or the heart rate variability, which sounds like a super multisyllabalic word that your wearable is telling you. And you can, while walking for 10 minutes on the treadmill one morning for your warm up in the gym, actually learn everything there is to know, or at least everything you need to know about that topic, about what diets address, about what supplements address it. And if you take that baby steps one at a time, because I'm personally a creature of consistency, right? I don't run 26 miles on the weekend. I do a little bit of cardio every day. I don't write a book like this in a month. I write this in three years by giving myself the task of achieving at least three sentences a day, right? So if you realize that the information is out there and can be systematically consumed. And not only that, but more importantly, 
is not systematically consumed from some encyclopedia, but rather the results of a test or a lab or the app that's connected to your wearable is telling you, you can learn a lot over the course of, I would say, I mean, I, I would say in one to two years, just with a little bit of time each day that again, you could do while you're hiking, while you're working out, while you're, you know, sitting on, on a commute to work and your car is a traveling university. Like I, I honestly, you know, and, and maybe we're delving into a little bit of my perspective just on education in general. Maybe it's because I'm homeschooled, but I've always been a very autodidactic person. And I think that the modern educational system doesn't do people many favors when it comes to actually taking charge of their education. And that, that's why I like, you know, the emergence of Khan Academy and YouTube and podcasting and, and, and sources of knowledge that allow people to technically never go to school in their life and be wiser or have more knowledge or know more about a certain topic than people who literally have a master's degree or sometimes even a doctorate in that field. So it, it, it really is achievable for anyone. I, I think if I were to respond to your original question, someone who was just starting getting into this, the first thing I would do is I would get the test that I could afford, or I would get the wearable, like the ring or the, or the, you know, the, the ankle worn device or the wrist worn device that I could afford. And I would just start to look at my data. Hey, what, you know, what's glucose mean? What's HRV mean? What's, what's it mean relative, relative to me? And why is mine low? What's the difference between when it says REM sleep and deep sleep? And I mean, you can learn that in five minutes, the difference between REM sleep and deep sleep and boom, you're off to the races. I think I'm making a very important point, you know, instead of looking for a, that today I don't do anything about my health and from tomorrow I'm going to buy a hacker, it's just asking for too much. I think that one to do here is a great thing, just like anything you have to commit to it, start small, consistent. We did a, a episode on just on power of habit side, you know, which is just compounding of a one action over a long period of time. And you're absolutely right. There is so much content and guidebooks are available today. Excellent books are available, but that commitment, I think biohacking is probably not something that one can look for a very quick solution. You can start easily, you're absolutely right, you know, with some and start start on your self-learning journey. And I think it does require some self-journey, at least where the science is today. There is no, when well, there is one blueprint, maybe we'll talk about later, but there's really no universal blueprint that anyone can say, I'm going to start following, you know, sometime, you know, people ask me also, what are the four supplements? What do you think about rapamycin? And I'm going to ask about that later. But I, I think that's not probably the place to start. I think there's a wide area of science, a lot of practice, a lot of different opinion and perspectives that people can slowly learn over a period of time. Ben, you know, I saw you last four years ago, and I can swear you have not aged one bit. In fact, you look a lot younger. So clearly, whatever biohacking stuff you're doing is definitely an N of one is working. How do you feel about, you know, your, I'm guessing you're probably experimenting on yourself for, I don't know, decades by now. How has been your personal journey and your own realization of how doing all these things about biohacking? I'm sure maybe everything might not have gone well also, but overall, how has that shaped you in terms of outcome you are able to see in your own life? I have a Han Solo style cryopreservation tank at home and I just climb in that when I get home. Then, you know, emerge <laughs> yeah. from Where it. Where can I buy one? Like, you know, <laughs> can you help me source one? expensive, you can, but you can build it yourself. Right. We just talked about being autodidactic. Yeah. There's some lessons on the internet. Um, you, you know, my my own journey, I would say, you know, particularly if we want to talk about, um, you know, self-preservation or looking younger or anti-aging, 
Um, I would say that it began with the important concept that I discovered in a couple of books, Robert Becker's book, The Body Electric, and Jerry Tennant's book, mm -hmm. Healing is Voltage. And even though I'd taken uh, chemistry and more specifically, you know, organic chemistry and biochemistry and microbiology at college and learned about cell depolarization and the importance of the electrical charge within the cell, you know, a slightly negative charge on the inside and a slightly positive charge on the outside and mm -hmm. the movement of electrolytes and things like that into the cell and metabolites and waste mm -hmm. products out of the cell. It never really clicked for me how much like a battery that we are mm -hmm. until I, I started to study those books and I realized, oh my goodness, you know, every time lightning strikes the surface of the planet or solar radiation bombards the surface of the planet, it charges up the surface of planet Earth with negative ions that if you touch them with your skin, like if you're rock climbing or climbing a tree or walking barefoot on the beach or swimming in you know body of water, which is the best way to do it, you're actually charging up your body's battery. And every time that photons of infrared light in infrared sauna or one of these biohacking red light panels, or guess what, the sun strikes your body, you're actually charging up your battery. Every time you drink good, clean, pure water, rich in electrolytes and minerals or add minerals to your water, or use a pinch of a good salt like we just did at, at lunch a few moments ago, you're giving your body these charged ions that it can use to keep the battery charged up. And every time that you step into a soup of Wi-Fi signals and wear your ear pods all day long with the Bluetooth signal turned up and outfit your home with smart appliances and are in this constant electrical soup, that's a very strong form of electricity compared to that mild form we'd get from say like the planet Earth or from sunlight, you're draining your battery. And so for me, you know, I, th I think probably the most remarkable thing I've learned in the journey of biohacking is how many of these biohacking technologies and how many of these concepts, whether things that are good for the body or bad for the body are based on the body being a battery. And so when people ask me like, well, how do I get started with biohacking? Sure. Like we were talking about, you can test and begin to learn, but you can also say, okay, I'm going to start with the stuff that charges up the battery, right? Grounding, earthing. Uh, you know, sunlight, infrared light, grounding mats, earthing mats, grounding shoes, earthing shoes, uh, pulsed electromagnetic field technology, PEMF, which is like grounding on steroids, water, minerals, electrolytes, food that's grown in mineral rich soil, or if it isn't minerals added back to it. And then I'm going to walk through my house and maybe unplug the Wi-Fi router at night. Or when I go to sleep at night during the one third of my life when my body actually does have a chance to recharge, I'm not in an electrical soup. I move the TV out of the bedroom. Uh, I've, I've got uh, you know things unplugged next to the bedside. My phone's in airplane mode or at least the Wi-Fi and the Bluetooth is disabled if it needs to be. If I'm using earphones or headbuds to sleep, they're wired instead of Bluetooth. And once you begin to think in that manner, I think that it's some of the lowest hanging fruit for self-preservation and for beginning to use biohacks that you can immediately feel mm -hmm. that really treat the body as it should be treated an electrical oh, machine. Yeah. That, that's amazing. I think, you know, sometimes we get carried away and think biohacking is all about these exotic molecules and how to access super expensive, you know, these cryo chambers and whatnot, but they're everyday biohacks. So let me just recap, you know, some of the things that you, you know, covered, you know, like grounding is a good idea. So whenever you get an opportunity to walk barefoot and probably whether you're walking on ground or inside your apartment, it's like we are on in 19th floor, does it do the same job? Um, 
getting rid of you know all these electromagnetic radiations around us and you know before we started the podcast you persuaded me to keep my phone away and now i'm glad you know i'm not feeling that little itch right. to check my messages now you are wearing this uh, you know strange looking yellow color glasses i'm <laughs> pretty sure there's some biohack reasoning behind that as well do you want to explain Yes. Uh and then by the way just just to briefly address your comment about the 19th floor. No, you are not as earth to grounded, but this is uh one reason why even me on my second floor bedroom, mm-hmm. you know, underneath the top sheet of the mattress, I have a grounding mat and it's mm-hmm. plugged into the grounded outlet. Every every outlet travels down to the right. ground eventually and in a hopefully the home you live in is properly, you know, pro- properly built and has the right electrical wiring and if that's the case uh, then you can actually ground yourself even if you're on the second floor or the or the 19th floor uh you can also by the way if you don't have a pair of grounding shoes or earthing shoes and you don't want to walk outside like a dirty barefoot hippie you can do like I do when I'm you know when I'm, I'm traveling and I go off for a walk maybe after the plane has landed I'll walk like 500 meters and I'll drop and do 20 push-ups and then I'll then I'll walk and so my hands are getting in touch and I'm getting the upper body strengthening effects there's all sorts of little ways that you can do this and like i mentioned like the opportunity to swim in a natural body of water or even a pool with metal pipes that eventually reach the ground with most pools even the rooftop pool of a hotel will do that and i will uh, we flew here a few hours ago after we podcast i'll go back to the hotel there's a rooftop pool and i'll swim in that cuz that's the best form of grounding that i'm going to get even better than if i were to go outside the hotel on the ground floor and walk barefoot or on the concrete outside or do the push-up trick So lots of subtle nuances there I realize but the glasses you know and and this is a, a little bit related to the battery concept um modern overhead LED fluorescent lighting or the backlit light from a computer screen or a phone particularly a phone that might not be in in night mode or or have the screen dimmed it presents the body with a or the the retina specifically with a very concentrated form of bluish green light which is absent of the red light that that bluish green light spectrum would normally have mm-hmm. if you were in the sunlight yeah. or even if you were under incandescent lighting or halogen lighting or a newer form of led called biological led mm-hmm. or oled and so because of that when people are underneath these bright modern overhead fluorescent lighting or the reason I'm wearing these glasses is because right now we have the lighting set up for the podcast they'll often get this flicker and irritation in the mm-hmm. eyes that eventually a few hours into the day results in brain fog sluggish mm-hmm. energy eventually in many people the onset of myopia mm-hmm. and that's that's one problem with children is not only do they have a lot of time now with their faces close to a screen mm-hmm. without throwing in horizon gazing or eye yeah. exercises but then the backlit screen that mm-hmm. they're looking at is also contributing to retinal irritation hence glasses that would be able to block blue light so i own two pairs i have a yellowish kind of almost clear looking pair like this for the daytime and then a red pair for the evening and like many elements of the biohacking industry you know the old blue light blocking glass thing is kind of a money grab you can import cheap glasses from china and you know make them look like they're yellow and red but i always look for technology that actually shows the spectrum of blue light that they block and there are several good companies out there you know i, I would say that probably you know one of the guys is popular in biohacking Dave Asprey he started the company uh, True Dark when he when he first launched and even if you look at some of those real old wrap around glasses you know I'd call them birth control for your head those those do a pretty good job blocking blue light as well these ones are called raw optics um there's another company called Blue Blocks 
But yeah, getting a good pair and preferably having one yellow pair for daytime and one red pair for nighttime. And then I'll throw in the pro tip for you. When I'm traveling or when I get up early in the morning at home, I will wear the red pair up until the time when I want to start waking up or up until the time when I want to start flooding my body with cortisol, which is what bluish green light does. And then I'll take off the glasses and hit myself with sunlight and blue light. So I sometimes wear the red pair in the morning to just ease myself into the day. Or if I go back home and I'm off of my time zone because my body thinks it's daytime, I use the red light glasses in the morning as almost mm. like a circadian rhythm hack. God, it's quite yeah. amazing. I think I need to follow some of the advice for my travel. I travel quite a bit and sometimes all the way to US, like you're traveling here and that time zone difference, you know, wreaks havoc on all the circadian rhythms. Are you familiar with the term uh, uh, Zeitgeber? No. Zeitgeber is a, is a German word. It means timekeeper. And this is especially important for people who travel a lot or who have sleep issues just because of poor sleeping habits that they're fixing. Uh, Zeitgebers are things that cue the body that it's daytime and that the sleep drive can be diminished. And the most powerful of them that you can use to get your body on the time clock or wherever you've traveled to more quickly without jet lag. The first we've talked about is light, getting a lot of sunlight or like I was in, in Delhi when I first arrived and it's gray there, you know, and it's very, I couldn't see even that far outside of my hotel room window. So I travel with glasses that are the opposite of these. They're glasses that you open up and they produce the bluish green spectrum of light. I also have that on my desk at home. One of those blue light block boxes that's made for like seasonal affective disorder that brightens up the room. So light is one. Uh, another one is food, right? If you're into intermittent fasting or skipping breakfast, that's a bad idea when you travel. Technically, a breakfast, and ideally one rich with about 20 to 30 grams of protein, is an excellent way to jumpstart your circadian rhythm. And then finally, movement is is a pretty powerful timekeeper. Uh, cold would be the, the fourth, but doing something like, say, like a movement session that you finish with a cold shower at the time of day when you want to start waking up. Uh, so if you play around with light, with a protein-rich meal uh, at the beginning of the day, with temperature and with movement, those are all powerful ways to kind of jumpstart your circadian rhythm. Excellent. So in the morning, irrespective of where you are, if you're able to give yourself some glucose and protein, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, move around, you know, get your heart rate going, yeah. expose yourself to white light, oh, blue light, yeah. Yeah. and uh, I mean, probably maybe a cold dip and you're... In, up and in, in an ideal scenario, protein-rich smoothie sitting outside in the mm -hmm. sunshine, followed by a dip in the pool, and okay. you're gonna feel you're feeling good pretty quickly. After I'm gonna that. keep that picture <laughs> in mind. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think I will travel coming up in a few weeks, so we'll try to replicate that. Yeah. To the extent, in fact, I want to ask you one more live advice now that you mentioned. You know, this light. I have noticed this. I mean, this is pretty. I mean, we have fairly bright light here in the studio, for the recording reasons. But it's very similar to light. A lot of us exposed to doing. Uh, office, you know, a lot of offices are lit up like pretty brightly yeah. like this. Um, and maybe, I don't know, definitely a lot of people are not using these, you know, blue light blockers during their day, especially second half of the day. And sometimes I do feel, you know, when the, as the evening comes, start feeling heavy around my eyes, is a mild headache. Uh, definitely fish record for, you know, a few hours, I feel that. If you are not able to, you know, use this uh, yellow glasses, is there anything people can do in the evening to counter the effect of whatever, you know, yeah, extra yeah. light exposure or, yeah. or you have to... Yeah. You can't wear the weird glasses or you don't have access to them and you're not going to convince your boss to change out all the lights or quit mm. your job. Um, you know, it's kind of like 
what I was talking about with sleep, mm. how it's, you're not going to not be around Wi-Fi or not use mm. your phone or not be around smart yeah. appliances during the day, but you at least can allow your nervous system to repair yeah. and recover during a night of sleep. And you could say the same for when you get home mm. from a brightly lit office. Yeah. If you walk into my bedroom at home in Washington state, all of the bulbs are outfitted with red incandescent lights mm. rather than bright lights. Does this look if, like a club? Yeah, if yeah, like a nightclub, <laughs> yeah. exactly. If you walk into the bathroom, there are next to the toilet motion detecting lights mm -hmm. that I got off Amazon that turn on red when I walk into mm -hmm. the bathroom at night. Yeah. So if I get up at night to pee, I don't disrupt mm -hmm. my circadian rhythm. Uh, if you walk throughout the house, mm -hmm. the action, the house is, it's very warmly lit because I've used regular, not red, mm -hmm. but regular incandescent lighting. Mm -hmm. Halogen would also work. Yeah. And again, that newer form of lighting and biological LED would also work, but paying attention to the lighting in your home. At your home computer, and even your office computer, you mm -hmm. can do this. There's a software called Iris that you mm -hmm. can install on the computer that will make the temperature of the screen more warm, mm -hmm. less bright and harsh, and even reduce the screen to more of a red light mm -hmm. when the sun sets in whatever area of the world that you happen to be in. Yeah. If you own an iPhone, mm -hmm. I don't have my phone on me. Hey, That's I'm following my yeah, own rules. Right, yeah. if I, we're, it's in the other room. But uh, there, if you Google iPhone red light trick, for example, I've outfit my iPhone, biohacked it yeah. to override the OS. If you Google iPhone red light trick, you can do this in two minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you right click the side button three times and it sucks all the blue light out of the screen. So you can do- Right click the, the, the right hand side button. Yeah, the right hand three side times. button three times. And it's, but you, you have to go in and adjust your color settings mm -hmm. first. And there's a triple click filter that you can do that sucks all the blue light out of the screen. You do it quickly. Just Google iPhone red light trick. Uh, so anyways, those are a few things that you can think about as far as the lighting is concerned. And then because we're talking about a little bit of an inflammatory response, just making sure that you consume foods rich in polyphenols and flavonoids. I think vitamin C and vitamin E are the most widely available antioxidants that are the most powerful that anybody can get. There's any, some like... And any time of the day, vitamin C and E. Well, vitamin C causes digestive distress mm -hmm. once you exceed, depends on the person, but about one to two grams. And so the way that I do vitamin C, especially if I'm traveling in a polluted area, for example, is I split it into three one gram portions throughout the day. And then with vitamin E, I take four soft gel vitamin E capsules in the morning. So my body is constantly getting a little bit of antioxidants in it. Now, it's important to realize that this can be overdone. Here's where we get back to the biohackers who are making smoke come out of their hard drives, right? Glutathione is a powerful antioxidant. Many people are getting that as an IV. Well, I mean, if you did take chemistry at some point, you remember any of it, an antioxidant donates an electron. And once it donates the electron, it becomes a pro-oxidant, right? So you can do too much of an antioxidant and create a pro-oxidative scenario, which is why, you know, like, if you get a glutathione IV, you want to take, like, an oral antioxidant afterwards, like vitamin C or something like that. Or really, I would say, uh, another insider tip for you, probably the most powerful antioxidant out there that you can buy in supplemental form is abbreviated PQQ. PQQ is a very powerful antioxidant. And that would be something that you could use if you just feel kind of like inflamed at mm -hmm. the end of the day and like the light has beaten you up. But the most important thing you can do is take control of the environment that you're in mm -hmm. after you get out yeah. of the office. Right. And I think in general in the health longevity space, I think the role of light is generally not very well understood or not much talked about. You know, we immediately gravitate towards fitness protocol and nutrition, these days even sleep and meditation. But I think our whole biology 
is very closely linked with the light around us. You know, the we I guess naturally evolved around suns, uh, circadian cycles, and uh, not only visible light, but we are also sensitive to both ultraviolet and uh, uh, ultraviolet light as well, infrared lights. And just managing all of that is one big part. I'm guessing you have a chapter in the book as well about you know managing light around. Yeah. Yeah, I do. You know, it's interesting because when you look at a lot of biohacking technologies, we're returning to an ancestral scenario, right? I would say that, yes, the sunlight and the planet Earth, and even though research is, is more scant on this, I would say that we're probably going to be finding out more and more about moonlight as well, that these are, are powerful ways to to fix the human body, like a, like a deep, intimate connection with those. There's a term that many people in the biohacking or the health industry use uh, called ancestral mismatch, also known as evolutionary mismatch, meaning that we live in a modern environment, especially in a post-industrial era, in which we are able to go open a refrigerator and have access to hyper-palatable foods or walk across the street to the grocery store when in older times we would have had to have walked fasted for a long time and gone gardening or had to grow something and go out and collect it or gone hunting to actually secure that same amount of calories. We are in temperature controlled environments when normally our bodies would have had to have developed stress resilience by dealing with the rigors of cold and the rigors of heat. Or we, um, we would normally have had access to things like solar radiation, the radiation from the planet Earth as mild stressors to the human body, or even like eating a wide variety of plants and herbs and spices rather than the standard cucumber, tomato, you know, ho-hum salad from the restaurant. And so when you look at a lot of biohacking technologies, you, you take the things that I was just talking about, right? Like, Fasting is very popular. We're trying to simulate not having access to the hyperpalatable foods. Going to the gym and working in a fabricated movement scenario is popular because we're no longer farming and hunting and gardening and building fences and battling and doing all the things that we would have done for a long time. Cryotherapy chambers and cold tubs and saunas are popular because we're trying to simulate that temperature dysregulation right. we would have normally experienced. Infrared saunas and red light panels are selling like crazy because people want to get that sunlight inside of the box that they're living in. And, you know, people are now buying grounding sheets and earthing sheets and the stuff that we talked about because we're disconnected from the planet. I was telling you at lunch about the home I'm building in Idaho. And in that home, yeah, I'll have like a lot of cool biohacks in the basement and in my office. But I also will be going outside in the sunlight and swimming in the pond that's at the edge of the property. Pond and, and not the pool. The natural pond. Right, exactly. Why not marry mm. modern science to ancestral wisdom? Often when I travel, you know, I, 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 I travel quite a bit, as you do also. I'm doing a lot of biohacking because when I travel, I'm not in the backwoods of Idaho, right? I'm, I'm going through Mumbai or Bangalore or Delhi, for example, here, and I've got all sorts of things that make it a lot harder to go through security at the airport but I'm doing a lot more biohacking because I'm disconnected. I'm in more of an ancestral mismatch mm -hmm. when I travel. And this is honestly why I think amongst you know entrepreneurs and executives mm -hmm. and people who do travel a lot, biohacking does seem to have caught on mm -hmm. because we have to figure out a way if we can't do it from an ancestral standpoint to do it from a yeah. technology standpoint. Got it, got it. And we should underline that point about ancestral mismatch because yeah, I completely agree with you and while modern science is giving us all these tools and insights and you know some very novel solutions which 
are very relevant in the new lifestyles that we find ourselves in, but also where people grew up, what their traditional diet, traditional rituals, traditional way of living, being in touch with that and being aware of that. And just thinking about, you know, I guess how your great grandparents were living and replicating some of that is probably going to be very relevant biohack for you. Oh, absolutely. Let's let's take um, let's let's take Indian food for example, right? Like your ancestors would have cooked with healthy oils, like mm -hmm. ghee, sometimes perhaps mustard oil if it could be extracted, extra virgin olive oil, mm -hmm. coconut oil, and the like. And the rise in diabetes mm -hmm. and obesity and some other chronic diseases that are metabolically related. Mm -hmm. Here in India, I looked into this a few years ago, mm -hmm. and you know, you and I had had lunch here the last time, and I had already looked into this before I mm -hmm. traveled. It's not linked to a rise in carbohydrate consumption or more lentils or more more naan or anything like that. It's linked to the replacement of many of those traditional mm -hmm. oils with yeah. vegetable oil, which is more fragile oil that can be oxidized more easily when exposed to temperatures mm -hmm. and repeated heating and contribute to inflammation yeah. in the body. Or, for example. Uh, we know less about properly preparing mm -hmm. plants to unlock the nutrients right. and the proteins in plants than mm -hmm. our ancestors because we're accustomed to getting yeah. food quickly or schools or parents don't teach their children how to soak, how to sprout, how to ferment, how to take, as we were discussing during lunch, that quinoa mm -hmm. or that millet and the day before, yeah. rinse it and soak it overnight right. so that you're unlocking the nutrients and maybe in some cases having a little under-the-counter jar where, jar where you're right. sprouting it and all of a sudden you're getting all the proteins that you mm. should be getting from a plant-rich diet, but you're not yeah. because we've lost connection with soaking and sprouting and fermenting and all of these slow food prep mm -hmm. methods that unlock the proteins in food. And then worse yet, we're drenching it in something like vegetable oil mm. instead of ghee. Yeah. And I mean, there are, there are ways around this, mm -hmm. of course. I mean, we've been shooting videos the past few days mm -hmm. when I'm here walking through the grocery store talking about you know where you can find the extra virgin olive oil and glass bottles mm. instead of plastic and how the ghee can be used as a replacement for vegetable oil and how you can ask at the restaurant that they not cook your food in vegetable mm. oil or when you're at a hotel like I am and you're at the buffet, you ask for three scrambled eggs in ghee or ask mm. for your vegetables to be cooked in coconut oil and you just have to be an aware mm. consumer. And then, you know, then you throw in the icing on the cake, the biohacks, right. right? Let's say you want to maintain muscle or build muscle on a plant-rich diet, and you're already unlocking some of the proteins from that food because you're learning some slow food preparation methods. Uh, then you dress that up with the type of things that you don't get from plants that would be like a modern biohack, like using creatine, taurine, yeah. vitamin B, and vitamin D. Those would be four right there mm -hmm. that are going to address a ton of deficiencies mm -hmm. that would normally exist on a plant-based diet. Right. I think you touched upon a very important point. I think we import a lot of great things from America, but one of it is also this industrially processed food and lifestyle habit and fast food and so on. Mm -hmm. It's a whole different topic, I think, uh, being selective about, you know, what are we copying from whichever part of the world and what are things, you know, which are better off being in touch with our roots and continue to incorporate and celebrate our lifestyle. Ben, a lot of people get interested in this whole area of biohacking and longevity for different motivations. Some people want to improve their performance. Performance can be for athletic reasons. Could even be for an um, executive like me to just improve performance at work. 
some people think about you know delaying onset of aging or avoiding lifestyle diseases but there is whole idea of lifespan increase also you know with david sinclair's book lifespan last 5 to 10 years you know many people have been talking about that we are finally at the cusp of a revolution where we can dramatically extend human lifespan dev dev spray famously talks about living up to 150 as somebody who spent in you know, a few decades thinking about it, what's your current take on this health span versus lifespan is it today still mostly about enhancing health span or you see some light at the internal for the lifespan increase as well well first of all i don't have a set number of years that i plan to live <laughs> i want to take as good care of myself as i can hmm. but at the same time that i'm doing that i don't want to be that biohacker who's cold and hungry and libidoless and never snowboards or swims with the sharks or hikes up a mountain because god forbid i do something that could take just a few seconds off my life nor do i want to be somebody who lives a long time but spends all those extra years trying to live a long time huddled up inside of a hyperbaric chamber or traveling to get yet another stem cell injection or what have you i think you do need to strike a balance and this is particularly relevant because if you look at let's say the rejuvenation olympics which is a hot new website in the us where people are submitting their test results from a aging test called the the true diagnostics aging test which measures not to get too into the weeds but the rate of methylation which is a rate of how quickly you're aging prior to that you might have done a, a telomere test which honestly was somewhat inaccurate and is just a test of how quickly the number of white blood cells on the blood spot that you submit are experiencing telomere shortening uh there's even modern tests of more precise markers of inflammation than you might get from a normal blood test one is the the glycan age which looks at at the level of glycation in the body which can be an indication of damage to proteins for example and when you uh when when you look at the rejuvenation olympics the rate of methylation test the type of things that people are doing to live a long time widely varies and sure you have Brian Johnson near the top of that list eating the same thing for breakfast lunch and dinner and dinner i think is at noon because that's the last time that he actually eats and doing the same exercise program every day and living a highly regimented lifestyle you know getting laser skin treatments for the face and borrowing blood from his son for a plasma replacement and i i have nothing against what he's doing i admire his his dedication and his thirst for knowledge and his, the quest that he's on for uh, himself and i think also for others and i mean sure there might be some extra virgin olive oil sales and dark chocolate sales mixed into that but i mean if i own a supplements company i'm i'm all about chamber or trap yeah yeah i'm i'm a, I'm a capitalist uh, but then you see also towards the top of that list a 45 year old mom who spends 70 bucks a month in supplements and plays pickleball and walks her dog every morning and has some time in the sunshine and isn't doing stem cells or peptides or exosomes or any of this stuff and it reminds me of these blue zones where people are not going to great extents to biohack and do all the crazy treatments you know they're living a natural lifestyle they're eating a wide variety of plants and herbs and spices they're drinking alcohol and enjoying meals with people and engaging in some element of you know religious fasting sometimes or 
you know, some, some type of, of cleanse or protein restriction or calorie restriction occasionally. Uh, you know, but yet, you know, you've got the 110-year-old gin-chugging cigarette-smoking grandmas who are, you know, hiking their goats up a mountain for half a life. And, and it just goes to show you that there's such a wide amount of genetic variability and there's so many factors that play into lifespan that I think, first of all, you cannot make a concrete statement that human lifespan is achievable much longer than about 115 years. And I believe that is close to that. It might be 117 is the longest on record based on birth record data. I believe it's a woman in France, uh, John Clement, I believe was her name who is the, the longest human on record. It's usually the females, gosh darn it. So based on that, I think that it is better to focus on some of the things that we know contribute to life happiness, meaning, purpose, human connectivity, absence of loneliness derived not through digital connections and your number of Facebook friends and Instagram followers, but through the number of real live people who you have a relationship with, who you interact, who you hug, you handshake on a daily basis. I would say that, you know, recent book I read called The Cancer Connection makes a pretty good argument for the idea that human connectivity is probably one of the better things to engage in for that ideal combination of health span and lifespan. And I would include happiness and life enjoyment in the health span part of health span and lifespan. So I think that um, you can get obsessive, you can get myopic, and you can start to chase numbers when I think it's better to chase purpose and to chase happiness, life enjoyment, adventure, uh, a renaissance man or a renaissance woman approach to life in which perhaps uh, learning guitar or piano or playing pickleball or padel or tennis might be more important to you than visiting the hyperbaric chamber at night. It's, it's interesting because that might, for some people, be a selfish pursuit. But I'll tell you the same thing that I tell my sons, and that is that life purpose and happiness should always be viewed at through the lens of loving others. It's not just about happiness for you. Your purpose statement isn't just about you. It's about blessing others, being with others, and using whatever skill set that you were born with to do good for as many people as you can. And so my purpose for anything I do to increase lifespan is so that I can be around this planet a longer time to be able to help people, care for people, connect with humans, foster legacy and training my own sons and me able to play with them and hike with them when I'm 80 or 90 years old. I think that's a much better perspective than chasing a number. Right. And so looking at it from a more qualitative lens that uh, at the end of the day, you're putting in all this effort to maximize the quality of life, which also means in some way similar quality of life, irrespective of which decade of life you are in. If you're going to live you know, to 80 or 90, 100, you want to retain your vitality and energy and ability to do things that you would like to do at that point in your life without having to be, you know, be burdened on other people or having to deal with all these, you know, diseases over the last two, three decades of life. Which in other words, I guess. You know, one can use the phrase health span, I don't know if you like the phrase or not, but you know, I mean, I guess from Indian context, I can speak that, you know, the mindset so far has been, you know, you hit 60 and our retirement age is 60 here, not 65 like US. 
and you mentally start acting like a old person you see people go through this change overnight you know you are going to office every day you retire one year of loneliness you start to lose your social connection at work very difficult to form new connection that age and the rate of aging just accelerates and by the time you are 70 you actually act behave look like an old person yeah so that's you know potentially you know by investing correctly in the right you know whether we call them biohacks or healthy lifestyle or right protocols you know one can add few more decades of high quality life with you know the purpose that's meaningful to you in your own context yeah, yeah and not not to get too esoteric but but what you just said life purpose is important mm-hmm. because if you have life purpose if you've if you've studied up and gone through a book like values factor by john d martini or mm-hmm. or ikigai a free workbook i've taken my sons through that you can find at, at the slow.co website s l o w w.co or you've you've gone through i even talk about life purpose and boundless and you have one single succinct purpose statement for your life that yes might change through different chapters of your life but is always driving you and is always keeping you connected to what things that you're naturally good at what things make time go by quickly what author mark manson says makes you forget to eat and poop mm-hmm. and you're constantly connected to that then retirement is not a palatable or attractive thing because mm-hmm. yeah you might not be making money in the same way when you're 60 or 65 but you're constantly seeking out ways to make your career and what you do for mm-hmm. a living relevant to life purpose and if you can unlock that then i think that getting old and eventually fading away as soon as you reach a certain age becomes something that's far less yeah. likely to happen but again you know i realize it's it's kind of a a little bit more of an esoteric topic but i think that it begins with being connected to your life's purpose you know and and you know mine has changed throughout the years right now because i'm in an era of wanting to be a good leader for my team mm-hmm. and for my family I'm wanting to embrace humility to a certain extent mm-hmm. and I'm wanting to learn how to listen to my heart and to listen to my gut more. Mm-hmm. My current life purpose is to be a wise teacher. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. A wise human, mm-hmm. a humble leader and a gracious teacher. I mean, a wise lead a human, a humble leader and a gracious teacher. Mm-hmm. And that was the life purpose that I developed on January 1st of this year mm-hmm. as I recognized that I was stepping into a new phase of my life. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, typically during christmas break is when i reanalyze step back and look at my purpose statement mm-hmm. and i like to be able to come back to that you know when life's flying at you and you're stressed out and you wake up in the morning and you're a little down mm-hmm. and you need something to get you out of bed in the morning you have to be able to return to that purpose mm-hmm. statement and this purpose statement do you craft for yourself in the past you have seen like typically last for 5 years 10 years you know how do you see it evolve i'm guessing you probably have a routine to go back Yeah. around christmas new year time to go back and reflect yeah. so how does that play out and you know maybe before you answer i'll just quickly share i very deeply believe having the purpose statement uh, in personal life or in an organizational setting is is amazing you know i think simon sinek said start with why i think it applies enormously you know corporate setting companies will have that deep purpose and mission you know go the distance for say and same in applies for individual human life at some point I define my purpose in two words you know there's really this word I like called consilience like unity of all knowledge so I'm driven by this quest to really learn I want to understand things for me that you know in another itself is a purpose and second you know impact I mean I'm quite privileged have actually a lot of resources just somehow figure out a way to be useful to the world at large and I've stayed with this for 10 plus years you know things probably evolve with time but coming back to it you know how does one think about crafting this purpose statement and 
how long can it last? Mine tends to kind of vary every couple of years. Mm -hmm. It always comes down to something that involves teaching people, educating. I have the heart of a teacher and an educator that always loves to learn at the autodidactic pace that we talked about earlier and not just learn for my own sake, but learn in a way that I can turn around and teach that to others. Typically, uh, at least for the past few decades, that's been in the realm of health and health education. Uh, and so there's always mild variants of it, but it changes every couple of years. There is one thing that you said, though, that's important, and that's the idea that you're branding yourself as a person in the same way that you'd brand a business, in the same way that a business would have a mission statement and core values and a purpose, a human being should have the same. I think that it's important for people to realize that a family should also have that. And that's something that I've really focused on developing for about the past five years with my family. A sense of legacy, a sense of raising not just your children, but your children's children. And so our family has a purpose statement, a mission statement that hangs on the living room wall, a core set of values that's within that mission statement, a family crest hanging above the fireplace, a family logo with each of the families symbolized in that logo. And the logo is on throw pillows and pickleball paddles and the family pepper shaker. And it's on the family flags that are on each side of the door when you come in, in the same way that you might have an old, you know, an old crest for a family. And it's on it's on our hats and our t-shirts. And we go out to dinner on the weekends and we all wear our family logo hoodies and our family hats. And we're that we're that weird family. But my sons know what it means to be a Greenfield, and we have a multi-hundred page book for the family. Here's what we do on Thanksgiving. Here's what we do on Christmas. Here's what we do at night before we go to bed. Here is what time we gather in the family living room for morning meditation. Here's each family member's uh, hex color for their logo and their text and their font. And here's the structure of the weekly marriage meeting that my wife Jessa and I have. So when my sons eventually start their own family and marry and move out of the house, I'll be able to hand them this book that they will then be able to build upon as they continue to develop the Greenfield legacy. Because this is relevant to what we were talking about when it comes to tradition, the way that food is traditionally prepared, for example. You're no doubt familiar with and probably talked before about the, the regs to riches to regs phenomenon or this idea that children will inherit wealth from their parents, not have a sense of identity and connection to the family and go off and squander that wealth because they haven't been raised with a sense of legacy and generational wealth. And so I think that in the same way that you develop yourself and your purpose and your business and your purpose, family also has to have purpose. That's amazing. I mean, that's... Uh... Thanks for sharing, first of all. I think that's very interesting. I have never heard of something like that, but it makes so much sense that, you know, as a group of people who are living together closely have this shared life context to articulate the collective purpose. So as a group, also you're moving towards something, you know, stemming from some core values that deeply believe in right. rituals and that you do together as a group and a visual identity that you have created and stay into the next level. And these things can last for a very long period of time. I think I'm going to have this conversation with my kids. Yeah, and, and in, in the same way that your purpose statement right. constantly evolves, the family book constantly evolves. Mm -hmm. Like recently, uh, both my father and my mother experienced some significant health issues. And we realized that as we walked them through potential end-of-life scenarios that we hadn't talked about that much as a family. So two months ago in the family booklet, now my sons who are 15 years old, they're, mm -hmm. they're twin boys, 
they and my wife and I both have our memorial service mapped out. We've written our eulogy. We've planned out our funeral. We have all of that in the Stanley book. We know whether people want to have organ donation or mm-hmm. cremation or what songs they want yeah. sung at their funeral, what they want people to wear and what they want the ambiance mm-hmm. to be like. And that alone yeah. is a powerful process right. for a young human mm-hmm. to think about their own death. Yeah. You know, I used back when AI first launched the, the face aging app mm. to create a 75 year old photo <laughs> of myself that hangs in my office. You don't look like this at 75? Uh, <laughs> I look kind of like Harrison Ford me. Gandalf, but but I walked into my office every morning and I see the old me, and there's something about that that drives me to not want to squander time. Yeah. Am I gonna, you know, dink around with a YouTube video and chasing comments on Instagram, or am I gonna do something mm-hmm. that fulfills my purpose statement? Because time is finite. I'm yeah. not gonna be here forever. Yeah. I doubt I'll be here 115 years. Yeah. You know, if, if I actually look at my genetics and I'm realistic and I do the very best I can. You know, I, I, I realize this this relates to mind over matter and biology mm-hmm. belief and the retirement statement mm-hmm. that you made earlier. You don't want to think yourself yeah. into an early death. But being realistic, looking at this as a statistician or an epidemiologist, I, you know, I'll, I'll be lucky to go to them in like my mid-80s, right? And so, uh, so having that at the back of your mind and planning on that is a good way to keep yourself on track yeah. when it comes to impact. Mm. It's interesting in the biohacking episode, you know, instead of talking about becoming immortal and living forever. <laughs> we are talking about this whole idea right. of momentum mori, right? You know, remember you have to die, uh, but it's such a powerful concept. I'm sure you yeah. have read, you know, tons of around that. Yeah, we 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 are immortal if mm-hmm. we think our, of ourselves from a legacy standpoint. Mm-hmm. I'm, well, I say we are immortal, but uh, what I mean specifically mm-hmm. by that is anyone who has children mm-hmm. is immortal. Right, right. right. Uh, uh, you have the choice for the impact that you're going to make based on the way that you raise your children. Right. No, it's incredible. I think um, this whole broader idea of, uh, I think, social connection, emotional health, why do I even need good health for? Right. Because good health is also an asset that I'm going to use for some purpose. And I think integrating all of that into longevity conversation, I think, makes it that much more richer and meaningful. I want to come back to, you know, the world of uh, more sciencey world of... Uh, biohacking and you know longevity i was recently I was telling you earlier at a conference a couple of weeks ago where some of the top um, longevity researchers were there and talking about um, where are we with metformin clinical studies or where rapamycin is a lot of these guys are taking rapamycin but also obviously we know that there are no human clinical trials and um, nmn you know is the should humans already start taking it or not? How much we can extrapolate from animal models to human models? What is your process to look into some of these emerging molecules which get a lot of press these days? Sometimes they're touted yeah. as, you know, be all end all of everything longevity. But what I might take away from this conference was, you know, it's, it's deeply gray area. There is very gray area. Yeah. So how should, but, but we all read about these headlines. So what should we you know as a yeah. normal user interested in longevity process these days? Yeah, yeah. Uh, expense and anecdotal observations are probably my two primary metrics when I'm looking at something like, let's say, um, rapamycin or metformin or, um, uh, the, the, there's, there's a, another one that you just saw, niacin mitre, NAD, mm-hmm. uh, and probably in addition to the expense and the anecdotal observation, I would say a third would be the 
alternative options that might offer me similar results mm-hmm. uh, with with uh, a little a little less um, a little less hassle. So let's say, for example, uh, metformin, mm-hmm. right? Uh, diabetic drug being used off label by longevity enthusiasts to live a long time because mm-hmm. of its impact on glucose regulation. Yeah. When I look at that and I I look at anecdotal data, I've used metformin. Mm-hmm. It lowers my blood sugar. I don't think anybody would be surprised that that's the case. It's also expensive. Mm-hmm. There's also the hassle in that it can impact the mitochondrial response mm-hmm. to exercise and yeah. cause gut issues in mm-hmm. some people. Yet, when I take a shot of apple cider vinegar before a meal, or even berberine, which works fantastically for me for blood sugar control, or bitter melon mm-hmm. extract, or Ceylon cinnamon, or uh, if I lift weights or I walk for five or 10 minutes before a meal, or you know the number one thing that keeps my blood glucose low, even before I go out to a cocktail dinner where I'm having the bread basket and, and a drink and maybe a couple of drinks and a sweet potato with a with a piece of meat that's insulinogenic, mm-hmm. cold. cold, cold shower, cold bath, before. cold soak beforehand. Yeah. And that's like a daily practice for me because of the impact I see on my glucose variability. Let me get this right because I want to replicate this. So yeah. let's say I have a evening dinner, which yeah, I try to avoid these days because I'm worried about all those things. You know, come to that. But you're saying I take a cold dip at I don't know 45, 50 degree Fahrenheit or six, seven degrees Celsius. It yeah. was two, three times, and then go yep. back, and it will as if I'm not having that bread basket. Exactly. Even 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 hot cold. For example, this morning I flew here, and I knew that with a 9.30 a.m. flight mm-hmm. and walking through the airport and waiting in the airport and walking and making phone calls in the airport, I wasn't going to get on the plane and fast until I'm here. Mm-hmm. Just call me weak, but I knew <laughs> I'm going to eat something. I also knew that I'm not going to like be lifting weights or you know having a shot of apple cider vinegar or something yeah. like that on the airplane. This morning, the very last thing I did before I, I left the hotel was I put on a podcast in the shower and I did five minutes of 20 seconds cold, 10 mm-hmm. seconds hot, 10 times through. Mm-hmm. And that fluctuation of hot and cold, or maybe also call me a wimp, I just enjoy hot, cold contrast more than cold and it has a similar impact People on call you weak and wimp, I think right. it's going to worry a lot of people, <laughs> right. so I yeah. think you stay in yeah, human category. Saving your cold soaker <laughs> after the sauna, mm-hmm. same thing. You don't have to start, you know, you don't have to jump straight into the cold, you know, mm-hmm. as you're waking up in the morning, you do sauna first and then cold. Yeah. But it impacts the blood sugar for mm. hours and hours yeah. the rest of the day. So if you told me right now after dinner, you and I are going to go out and then we're going to have like a huge basket of naan mm. and we're going to have this enormous, you know, wonderful buffet feast yeah. and we're going to have a couple glasses of wine and say, all right, let's go, let's go jump mm. in the pool first and swim around a little bit or get cold or, you know, do a cold shower mm-hmm. because that's the most impactful. But back to the, to the root of your question, based on that, I don't take metformin mm-hmm. because for me, there are more affordable, easier, yeah. Potentially less for me as an athlete, harmful yeah. options out there. Yeah. You look at something like um, NAD mm-hmm. or, or niacinamide. Um, sure, there are ways that I could get that naturally. Fermented foods, mm-hmm. sauna, exercise, uh, limiting carbohydrates, or even getting into a state of ketosis mm-hmm. with carbohydrate limitation or the use of ketone supplements or both mm-hmm. can all raise NAD. Right. Uh, the vitamin B complex, niacin, that is a precursor to NAD, is mm-hmm. found in avocados. Uh, it's found in dairy. It's found mm-hmm. in many fat-rich foods from yeah. the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom. And so, yes, I could get that naturally, mm-hmm. but now down to anecdotal observation. There is nothing for me that beats sleep deprivation mm-hmm. and a supplement for jet lag 
like combining NAD with creatine. Mm. That's like my pro tip for sleep deprivation. So for me, yeah, I could sit in an aging research convention all day long and hear about the gray area of NAD, but all I know is that if I take around 300 mg of niacinamide or if I take an NAD supplement, mm-hmm. I feel great in a sleep-deprived state. Mm-hmm. So I use NAD. Right. Uh, and then if you look at rapamycin, I didn't take that until about six months ago. Mm-hmm. I was concerned about the immune suppression that you yeah. see with rapamycin. Yet when I realized that the data, albeit the data on yeast and fruit flies mm-hmm. and models that are you know rodent models, not humans, mammalian, yes. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty convinced that we will see evidence that a mm-hmm. very, very small dose of rabamycin, I take five milligrams once a week as a way to inhibit mTOR, mm-hmm. which is a potentially age accelerating pathway, yeah. is a good idea. And now I step back and I say, well, if it were the $3,000 a month mm-hmm. prescription rabamycin, the data isn't strong enough for me to do that. But weak data combined with the fact mm-hmm. that here in India, you can get a pharmacy pretty dirt cheap. I can get Rapapro, generic off-label version mm. or, or generic version uh, for about 60 bucks for around a two-month supply at home. I take five milligrams of rapamycin mm. once a week. But you have to be informed. You know, This comes back to the education mm-hmm. piece that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. The only time you inhibit mTOR, you inhibit the ability of being able to build muscle. Mm-hmm. So I only take rapamycin on Sundays, right. which are my recovery day, so that I'm not putting something into my body that keeps me from gaining muscle mm-hmm. on the same day where I'm lifting weights. So now we get into some of the subtle nuances, yeah. but that's generally my approach. How much is it gonna mm-hmm. cost me? How do I actually feel yeah. when I take it? And are there other options that might result in less discomfort or damage to my body? Got it, so some of these molecules are interesting. There's promising data in animal studies, Definitely a lot of anecdotal evidence. And then it's a cost versus benefit trade-off. And benefit yeah. eventually, you have to somewhere in tune with what's happening in your body and how does this you know, particular intervention yeah. make you feel. Yeah, you need to be in tune with your body and preferably quantify. Like I wouldn't know mm-hmm. anything I just told you about bare brain versus metformin versus cold mm-hmm. versus walking if I wasn't wearing this patch on the back mm-hmm. of my arm that's continuously monitoring my blood glucose. So sometimes you do have to quantify and, and be willing to do that to know some of these things. Yeah, you know, we earlier in this podcast, we were another guest, we talked about CGM, you know, patch that you're wearing. What's your recommendation? I mean, CGM, I think people in India have heard about it. Some people have tried. I think Ultra Human has a very good product people use. Um, in my own experience, I've seen that after I tried CGM for a few weeks and then coming back to it every six months is enough. I'm somehow not able to find usage week or week or long period of time. How do you recommend yeah. it? Uh, yeah. Or is, is it a good idea to wear this patch for a long period of time? Uh, you mentioned Ultra Human. I'm wearing the ring and I'm wearing the patch. Yeah. And I wasn't even familiar with the name Ultra Human three days ago. Huh. And someone gave this right. to me. So I can't say I'm, I'm advertising them or, yeah. or endorsing them. I just happen to mm-hmm. have been given one. So I'm experimenting with it. Uh, however, at home, I do use a Freestyle Libre patch mm-hmm. two weeks every two months. Okay, got it. Right, so the, they technically send you every month. So by the end of the year, I usually have a surplus right. that I give away to people mm-hmm. of, of blood glucose sensors. Uh, but I find that if I'm testing two weeks mm-hmm. every couple of months, I'm able to keep my finger on the pulse of how my lifestyle and my mm-hmm. diet and my exercise are affecting my blood glucose values, stress, sleep, you know, right. a lot of things can affect it without necessarily having to, to keep the patch on all the time because frankly it's just yet another thing to do you know to scan and yeah. do the hold the phone up it doesn't take much time but sometimes i like to to not have to worry about yeah 
And some of these things also act as an accountability framework. And this is here, you know, one of my experiences in this is oh, with the Oura ring similar to ultra human ring. When I start wearing this, I notice that whenever I'll have a drink or two, my scores will be terrible next day. Yeah. And at some point when you start, you get used to getting, you know, 85, 90, and suddenly you get 60. One is the whole psychological drama of that, you know, the whole different ball game. Park that for a second. And then I start looking into, you know, the impact of alcohol on the sleep quality, especially REM sleep. And a lot of people started talking about it. You know, Hoberman had a whole episode on the impact of alcohol on sleep. And his basic, I guess, the whole episode take it was alcohol is bad. Now we know alcohol is a big social um, element. Um, Bangalore is a, you know, the um, uh, beer capital of India. There's so many, you know, breweries everywhere in every street. I have now stopped, you know, alcohol. I think I just said data was adding up to be too much. And now I get much better school. What's your take and recommendation on just how the approach to alcohol for someone who is a frequent drinker? I drink almost every day. I have about six to seven drinks a week. Okay. Uh, the reason for that is because, first of all, if you look at the data that Dr. Huberman, who's very intelligent and wonderful public health educator, by the way, uh, cites, it doesn't differentiate between the one to two drinks of alcohol in a almost microdosing way mm -hmm. that many of the blue zones engage in besides mm -hmm. Loma Linda mm -hmm. and having all six to seven drinks on a Saturday night and overwhelming mm -hmm. your body with acetaldehyde and mm -hmm. ethanol. There's a big difference between me saying running is healthy mm -hmm. and running two miles a day yeah. versus running 27 miles on Saturday mm -hmm. as far as how much my body is able to yeah. handle at a time. That's the first thing to realize. The second thing to realize is not all alcohol is created equal. Gin, vodka, tequila, particularly mezcal tequila, mm -hmm. an organic biodynamic glass of red wine, such mm -hmm. as you'd find from Italy or New Zealand or yeah. France, is going to be far lower in toxins and sulfites and preservatives than getting a margarita mixed with high fructose corn syrup or a Manhattan made with jaggery at the, at the bar or at yeah. the restaurant. Uh, the next thing you need to realize is that in the blue zones, the bitters and herbs and spices mm. that are frequently consumed are tonics for the liver mm -hmm. and help the liver to be able to upregulate its antioxidant pathways that would assist with the detoxification mm -hmm. of the alcohol. I go a step further than that. Before I drink alcohol, I will take a supplement, particularly mm -hmm. there, there's two that I like, one called DHM, dihydromericin. You can find it just about any mm -hmm. pharmacy or health food store. It actually breaks down acetaldehyde. Yeah. It's not gonna break down six or seven drinks, but yeah. one or two drinks mm -hmm. breaks it down so you're removing the toxic byproduct of alcohol. Mm -hmm. A new genetically engineered probiotic called Z-Biotics, mm -hmm. a tiny little liquid shot. I mean, you can get it in the US, I don't know if you can get it here, mm -hmm. but it will act similarly. In addition to that, after I've had mm -hmm. alcohol next to the bedside later on at night, mm -hmm. I'll take a binder. Why later on yeah. at night? Because a binder will bind anything, including that DHM or that mm -hmm. Z-Biotic or whatever else, digestive enzyme I might be having with dinner. So before I go to bed at night, I'll take some activated charcoal mm -hmm. or some chlorella Quite. to bind the alcohol. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I take a binder before bed at night mm -hmm. anyways, okay. because since I'm going to have a bowel movement the mm -hmm. next morning, it's like a daily detox. Mm -hmm. And... If you've had mold, mycotoxins, mm -hmm. even you know chronic co-infections like yeah. Lyme or Epstein-Barr, it's a really good way to move stuff through and out of the body. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's it's all contextual. Mm -hmm. Like a little bit of alcohol on a regular basis, almost like microdosing, mm -hmm. 
accompanied with things that help you to process mm-hmm. the potentially toxic byproducts mm-hmm. of that alcohol, I think is an okay approach. Not only is it an okay approach because it does lend itself to a little bit of the social enjoyment that mm-hmm. you talked about. Uh, not only is it an okay approach because for me, it keeps me from getting drunk. I haven't been drunk in 15 years because I never feel like yeah. I had alcohol in a month. I'm going to go out and have a six pack. And then finally, if you look at the plant kingdom, plants don't have teeth and claws and antlers and sharp nails like animals do. So they've developed their own plant defense mechanisms that allow them to, when consumed by a mammal, cause mild irritation to that Mm -hmm. mammal in high amounts you know bloating and digestive distress that would allow the seed of that plant to be pooped out by the mammal so it can grow elsewhere it's an evolutionary survival mechanism of the plant well in small amounts this induces an endogenous antioxidant production in the human body that results in the human becoming more resilient which is why a high intake of a wide variety of plants and herbs and spices can be good for you Now, this might seem paradoxical to what I was saying earlier about quinoa or millet and, you know, the soap-like irritants in quinoa or say like the the lectins Mm -hmm. and grains and some of the problematic compounds that can make you sick if you're, say, like eating enough plants to get all the protein that you Mm -hmm. need. There's a difference between microdosing with small amounts of plants and herbs and spices and a little bit of alcohol Mm -hmm. and like on a regular basis eating huge amounts of plant defense mechanisms. Mm that haven't been deactivated yeah. through soaking and sprouting and fermentation and the like. Mm-hmm. So we could even draw an analogy between another popular habit amongst biohackers mm-hmm. these days, microdosing with psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Big difference between dropping 100 micrograms of acid at the beginning of the day and taking 10 micrograms mm-hmm. for focus right. or creativity. Big difference between eating a five gram psilocybin truffle, yeah. taking like a minuscule amount mm-hmm. of magic mushroom for creativity during the day. So it all comes down to the dose is the poison, what do you accompany it with and 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 how is it actually affecting you and your propensity to do more or less of it god amazing i think that's a really good mental model i think that's also going to make a lot of people very happy listening to that <laughs> because alcohol is vilified a lot these days i might have done my own bit i have a nice wine collection i'm starting to give away slowly i'll reconsider when you say micro dosing of you know alcohol what does it mean you take a you know glass of wine and sip it slowly for next two hours? It doesn't necessarily mean that you're consuming it in tiny microdoses mm-hmm. when you're having it. It means you're drinking a very small amount every day. I see. So I might have a glass of wine, maybe a little bit more than that, around mm-hmm. four ounces Got with it. or right before dinner. Or I might take less than an ounce of a hard alcohol, mm-hmm. like gin or like gin or vodka yeah. or tequila, and put that in soda water with mm-hmm. a little bit of lemon and bitters. Right. So it's just a very small amount. And frankly, again, maybe I'm a weakling, but my tolerance is low enough to where if I do that, like before a meal, I, I, again, I break the rule. I don't yeah. have my alcohol with food. I have it before because I kind of want to feel it, right? right? If I'm going to get that social lubrication, yeah. I want to be able to right. do it, you know, mm-hmm. on on less by having it on an empty stomach so that's what i mean by microdosing like not your fishbowl sized glass of wine or your you know your your massive las vegas curly strut <laughs> drink of jungle juice yeah. just like a little bit of a good clean alcohol yeah. as, a, as a tonic as a bitter as a digestive yeah. i think everything has a nuance and moderation in general yeah. with, i guess with ideas as well as substances i guess yeah work really well before we wrap up ben i want to ask you you know i mean i know your book has probably thousands of biohacking inputs and people can go to the whole book hopefully there's a new one also 
on the way. But if you ever just go through your morning till night and just recap some of the biohacks that work for you for a long period of time, which are simple, cost-effective, you know, easy to get access to, just if you run through your morning till night, you know, I saw you doing something which looked like a stretching or jumping Jackie Cool yeah. during the break. But yeah, let's run through your day and see what are some things some of us can copy from your routine. Sure. Uh-huh. Some 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 of the key things. Don't don't worry. You don't do all this stuff and then officially start work at five p.m. Like these are just little things <laughs> that I would sprinkle in throughout the day. I uh, I always at some point in the first hour when I wake engage with the production of what I call young muscle, mm-hmm. meaning. I've got a collection of little foam rollers and massage guns and little exercise balls and things like that in the basement. Mm -hmm. And typically I'll put on some hot water for coffee or tea and I go down to the basement and I kind of like do my own Mm self-inflicted massage, get the blood flowing. I'll usually listen to something that's kind of easing me into Mm -hmm. the day, typically like something spiritual, like Mm -hmm. a devotional or scripture Mm -hmm. reading or something like that. And I'm just kind of working my body and moving almost like a stretch when it gets up or Baloo the bear would rub his back against the tree in the jungle book. I'm kind of like doing that type of thing. So I figured by the end of the week, I have a mass like, you know, 75 to 90 minutes of deep tissue work without actually getting a massage, working out the cross links and the adhesions and muscle. I also like it because some days I I just don't have time to work out, but I'm moving all day long. This is another hack of mine. I got a kettlebell on the floor of my office. I've got a walking treadmill. I got a pull-up bar going up the stairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I like to know that at any point during the day, I can move without injuring myself, mm-hmm. all the more important as I get older. Yeah. So starting off my day with some form of movement just kind of creates momentum mm-hmm. for me the rest of the day just to stay metabolically active, mm-hmm. which is great to reduce yeah. your risk of chronic disease and lower the blood sugar that mm-hmm. we talked about. Yeah. So start my day with that. Most days I do some form of heat and cold. Mm-hmm. If I don't have the time to do it in the morning, I'll do it in the evening. Mm-hmm. If I'm traveling and I'm in a hurry like this morning, I'll do the hot, cold contrast in the shower. Yeah. And, you know, play a podcast or an audiobook when I'm just in there, you know, wasting right. water. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm, I'm cognizant of, of water <laughs> use, but sometimes that shower is worth it. Yeah. Uh, at home, I like to do a, a sauna followed by about two to three minutes of cold, mm-hmm. like a, a cold bath or a cold yeah. soap, literally. Like in dry sauna versus steam. I like infrared, okay, just because you're getting all that photonic light absorption mm-hmm. that I talked about earlier. That's beneficial for charging up the battery. The photons of light mm-hmm. penetrate the skin a yeah. little bit more deeply, resulting in a deeper sweat and more detoxification. Yes, you need to be in there slightly longer than a dry sauna. You got to warm it up, which you got to remember to do. Dry mm-hmm. sauna, you can just walk into. Steam sauna, I get nervous about the mold. I get nervous mm-hmm. about whether or not the water that you're breathing in, whether that vapor so, has been filtered. And mm-hmm. so if I use a steam sauna at a health club, I literally ask them, kind of like how I ask if the food's been cooked in yeah. ghee or vegetable oil, do you use a water filter in mm-hmm. the steam sauna? Right. And if they don't or if they don't know, mm-hmm. I usually don't do the steam sauna. I love the way it makes you feel, mm-hmm. but... I'm careful about what I'm breathing in, in the steam sauna. So hot and cold is an element. Mobility is an element. Um, I would say that I'm typically doing some form of uh, strength training throughout the day, either a formal trip to the gym in my backyard or in my basement, or again, the kettlebell on the floor of the office. Mm -hmm. On a day where I'm just looking at my schedule, I'm like, I'm not going to be working out today. Just every time I go in and out of my office, I'll yeah. do 30 kettlebell swings, 20 push-ups, mm-hmm. 10 air squats. So I just kind of make mini workouts mm-hmm. throughout the day. Um, in the afternoon, I always take some form of a nap or a siesta. The mm-hmm. reason for that being that I liked up my nice, quiet, private mornings, mm-hmm. but it usually requires me getting up around 4.30 or mm-hmm. 5. 
and because I've got a family and I'm usually not going to sleep until 9, 30 or yeah. 10, that builds up to long-term sleep mm-hmm. deprivation or a little bit of tiredness and, mm-hmm. and you know not being in a great mental place by dinner time. Mm-hmm. So always after lunch, I make sure that my team keeps the schedule clear from about 1.30 to 2.30, mm-hmm. which allows me time to slip into the basement mm-hmm. and to do uh, a nap. I have a hyperbaric chamber. Mm-hmm. I love to nap in that because mm-hmm. I zip myself up yeah. and I breathe pure oxygen and the world mm-hmm. can't get to me and I just lay back Amazing. and I either meditate mm-hmm. or I take a nap or I do one of the non-sleep deep rest mm-hmm. protocols like yeah. yoga nidra, play around with some mm-hmm. kind of a relaxation device I'm supposed to be testing yeah. and trying out anyways and my wife's going to kill me if I'm <laughs> in bed every night with a bunch of wires yeah. attached to me. So I use my lunchtime, mm-hmm. you know, my post-lunch siesta to, yeah. to even like try out new devices. Yeah. So that's kind of my job as a mm-hmm. you know immersive right. biohacking journalist to do some of that stuff and that's the time of day i've identified as being able to do that uh and uh another another key for me is towards the end of the day as the day wise down winds down it would be some of the things we talked about earlier mm-hmm. like limiting red light red light exposure uh starting to step away from business heavy mm-hmm. spicy meals you know things that would warm up the body yeah. For bed, I typically will take a little bit of magnesium. I'll take, uh, if I'm traveling, Mm -hmm. melatonin. I use uh, usually the GABA-based supplement. Mm -hmm. Gamma amino butyric acid is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. And there's a variety of supplements, natural ones, like Mm -hmm. say uh, lemon balm or valerian root that have it in Mm -hmm. there. Uh, On this trip, I'm traveling with a little bit of topical cream called Mm -hmm. Somnium that I'll put on the back of my neck. And so it's usually that melatonin magnesium and occasionally CBD that I'll mm-hmm. use for sleep. Uh, and then, um, CBD oil form or injection? I use an oil. Okay. I, there's a company in Florida that uses an organic mm-hmm. full spectrum CBD okay. called Element Health. I don't do gummies or mm-hmm. smoke weed. And the main reason for that is THC, it does relax you, but mm-hmm. it impairs your, your REM sleep. Mm-hmm. You don't dream, you don't engage in memory consolidation or emotional mm-hmm. processing or a lot of the things that, that are part of a good night's yeah. sleep. It also results in a lot of free radical damage mm-hmm. to the mitochondria. And so paradoxically, because inflammation of the mitochondria is linked to chronic fatigue from stress, mm-hmm. many people will use marijuana to relax at the end of the day because mm-hmm. they're stressed out and create this negative feedback loop where they're getting more fatigue and as a result, more stress. So it's the only time I'll use something like that is for example, I think, I think it's great as a sex drug. You know, I Mm -hmm. I think THC is kind of like one of the, one of the the plants of love. And so that that would be an example of a a way that I'd use something like that. Um, anyways, though, uh, at that point, you know, I'm in bed by around nine 30 or Mm -hmm. 10 lights down room is nice and cold. I sleep on a grounding mat Mm -hmm. so I've, uh, I've, I've typically, um, you know, got a, a little bit of mouth tape on, which is mm. great because it forces you to nasal breathe as you sleep, which helps a ton with that. And the very last thing I do before I go to bed at night, I've been married for 21 years. Mm-hmm. In addition to that weekly marriage meeting with my mm-hmm. wife that I talked about, which is split into four parts, expressing gratitude to each other, mm-hmm. talking about household duties and chores that we need mm-hmm. to, to discuss and review. Uh, talking about problems or blockers that we're experiencing either personally or with each other. You know, mm-hmm. it's bugging me that you started drinking, you know, all the hot water in the morning and not mm-hmm. making extra. Or, okay. you know, I've been meaning to talk with you about, you know, how I, I you know, I'm, I notice you've been, you know, what more grumpy with the kids at night or yeah. something like that. And then finally, family calendar, mm-hmm. like what's coming up that we yeah. need to talk about and plan for. 
Well, in addition to that, we also have uh, every night for about five minutes before we go to bed, we pray together. Mm. And I think that one element for us of the strength of our relationship is we do something that's spiritual and mm -hmm. sacred together every night. And sure, sex is spiritual and sacred, but mm. believe it or not, we're not having mad hot wild love every night. So we we pray in the evening right before we go to bed and we're praying for our day and for our children and for our lives and for our home and for people who we've mm -hmm. told we would pray for. And then I put on the mouth tape right. and I fall asleep. Outstanding. I think our last one, you know, this family ritual is probably the yeah. ultimate yeah. bio and life hack that I think a lot of people who are listening to this can consider. I think it's probably save a lot of emotional and social trouble, you know, following this hack, but many others. I think you've been very generous with your time, Ben, as well as all the various hacks and signs you sprinkle throughout. But I also noticed that there's a sense of measure. It's not extremes. It's about being calibrated, thinking about things, you know, and slowly experimenting, seeing what works for you. But in the whole world of longevity and health is fascinating. I think you've done an incredible job as an educator to talk about it, experiment on yourself, sharing your learnings with the world. I'm glad you're able to find time to visit India second time. Hopefully next visit will not take four more years. I think yeah. you know the work you're doing is outstanding. I think a lot of people can in, in India would love to hear from you, learn from your experience. And please keep doing the outstanding work. I look forward to your next book. I love this country. I love these people. I wish I'd come back sooner than three years. And I will be back. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We look forward to it. Thank At Sparks, we aim to bring to you stories of exponential impact. We share in-depth analysis of what goes behind success stories. If you find our conversations interesting, you can join us by subscribing to our YouTube channel. You can also listen to Sparks on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or any other audio platform of your choice. If you have any suggestions on who we should invite or what topics we need to cover, just let us know in the comments. We are always listening, looking for ways to improve, and keep getting better as we go along.